Well, this morning we continue in our series, Enough's Enough, and it's actually the last week, and so this might be the Enough's Enough Enough, uh, is what this uh, particular week is. And you'll notice that we're in the book of Philemon. We've been in Colossians all uh, throughout the fall, and so today we find ourselves in the book of Philemon. Uh, We connected these two books together, not because of something we've done here in the 21st century, but because at the time they were written, they probably traveled together. Uh, And so they were probably in the company of one another uh, as the Colossian letter was read, and then off to Philemon uh, came this very personal letter that Paul had written. We know it's a personal letter. You see in the very beginning of of Philemon, the verses that we omitted from our reading this morning talk about the the church that meets in his home and has several other people listed. But beginning in verse 4 and on through the letter, we see that the word you is actually in the singular. And so Paul is addressing some very specific requests, appeals uh, to Philemon here. And so as we come here, we come to a living workshop, if you will, a metaphor for what it means to live the Christian life, at least in one particular way, when one comes to an understanding that enough's enough. And so if we were to take the theology of Colossians and apply it to a real-world situation, something like the book of Philemon is what would come out from that. So let's take a look at what it says this morning uh, together. The New York Times ran an opinion piece by uh, Frank Bruni last April, entitled, A Politician Takes a Sledgehammer to His Own Ego. And I don't know if you uh, saw that particular article or even if you read the New York Times, uh, but it begins by identifying the politician using these words, the blind man who gave up political glory for Jesus Christ. And we, of course, know this politician as our own lieutenant governor, uh, Cyrus Habib, who announced that instead of running for a second term uh, or a second term in office, he would instead be entering the Roman Catholic uh, priesthood. That seems like a radical move, to leave a promising political career to become a priest. That seems very radical. And of course, the obvious question here is why? Why why would you do that? Well, it seems that after doing a personal uh, inventory, a moral inventory of his life and his career, Habib came to see that he was journeying down the wrong path. In fact, he could feel himself, and this is a quote from the article, being swallowed by pride And should he at some point be named governor, and because his lieutenant governor was very possible that Jay Inslee uh, would then could be named to a national post at some point, uh, maybe even the Biden administration, uh, then Habib would then move into that role as governor. And he he says this in the article, it might be too intoxicated by power to let it go. That's some inventory that Habib had done uh, in his own life. For Habib, slaying his own pride meant stepping away now which he sees as being akin to handing over your car keys to someone before you start drinking. Instead of enlarging his own status and furthering his descent into pride, Habib has instead chosen an altogether different path, one that he hopes will create more space in his life for God to operate on him. This kind of decision, the one where an Ivy League law school grad trades in a promising political career for the priesthood, even taking a vow of poverty in a nation that holds the promise uh, for the possibility of tremendous financial success, it seems so difficult to make sense of. And that's why it makes national news. It doesn't quite compute with our cultural or even our personal expectations. The New Testament book of Philemon invites a similar response. What Paul asks of his friend Philemon here, and the journey home of his new friend Onesimus, 
doesn't compute with what we might expect for ourselves, let alone with any sense of personal preservation. Now, not all scholars agree, but tradition holds that Onesimus was a runaway slave. If this is true, then his fleeing in reality is an act of robbing his master, let alone anything that he might have taken from the household before he fled. Furthermore, having fled the household itself and having not yet been caught, Onesimus will have harmed the reputation of his master, both in the household but also in the community. What type of household is Philemon running anyways where he can't keep track of his slaves? And not only that, of course, anytime we see human relationships, there's always the possibility of some kind of personal betrayal that Philemon might have felt by Onesimus' departure. So serious in that time was this, this fleeing, this running away, that Onesimus' very life could be required or demanded of him. And if not his life, he was certainly in store for beatings and possibly even being marred. To be returned to his master's household would come at great personal risk. But to return, not be returned, but to return under one's own volition, that seems completely unfathomable. But grace compels you and me to act differently. Grace calls us to something different in our life, a different journey, as we heard with Habib. In fact, the song Amazing Grace has a line in it that I think fits well with the story of Onesimus here in Philemon, a line that doesn't necessarily match it word for word as far as this is what the uh, original composer had in mind, but I think the words themselves fit well here. Remember that line uh, in, in the verse, grace will lead us home. That might just be the headline for Onesimus' return here. But again, that return comes with a potential cost. So we're going to look at this morning the cost to three people uh, in this story and what it amounted to for them. The first one is the cost for Onesimus. Now, as much as I want the Bible to condemn human enslavement and to instead articulate human equality in a 21st century Western terms, it doesn't. And that has created some, cha- some challenge over the years for readers as, as they gather around this, this particular text, there seems to be a distance here from our own lived experiences in that regard. But the apostle here is not taking up a pen uh, in this letter to condemn the cultural structures of slavery in total, but is instead inviting believers like you and me and, and folks back at that time to a higher obligation within those structures, an obligation that stems from what is gained in Jesus Christ responsibilities that are associated with being a heavenly kingdom person. For Onesimus, who is a slave from the household of Philemon, those responsibilities are outlined in Colossians chapter 3. Remember the household codes that we saw there. Here's what we read there. That slaves in verse 22 of Colossians 3 were to wholeheartedly obey their earthly masters and they were to be trustworthy. We see in verse 23, they were to be diligent and hardworking. We see in verse 24, their motivation was not only to please their earthly master, but even more, out of reverence and love for their heavenly master. And so Paul makes the point in Colossians that folks who were in this particular lot in life uh, could please God by the way that they worked. They could form a a great trustworthy reputation uh, even in that menial work. And recognizing that Onesimus is in attendance, when the church at Colossae 
uh, receives this letter, we know that in Colossians 4, 9, that he's present there at that time, so we know he is hearing this list. And it must have been rather jarring when he hears chapter 3, verse 25 of Colossians read to that crowd. It must have weighed on him incredibly heavy when he heard the words from Paul, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. You just imagine as a runaway slave when you hear those words at the tail end of the household code. His heart must have dropped. It must have sunk. This is what Onesimus is returning to. This is what he's coming back to. The very real possibility of enslavement once more. As well as the fact that he's returning to enter into a life of service where his commitment is now modeled after being obedient and hardworking, not a useless deserter. And the very real possibility that there might be a punishment for his crime. It seems rather risky. Unless enough's really enough. Note how Paul identifies Onesimus in Colossians chapter 4, verse 9. He calls him the faithful and beloved brother. This identification resembles how Paul has identified some of his traveling companions already here in the text. Notice in chapter 1 of Colossians that this fellow Epaphras and this person in chapter 4, Tychicus, these two folks are also called uh, with this same identification as being faithful and beloved. But there is a notable exception here. He refers to those two as being uh, servants or fellow servants. The word there, doulos, in the Greek is the same word servant as slave. That's not used with Onesimus and probably for obvious reasons. Uh, it might give the wrong idea to Philemon of Paul trying to lay claim over Onesimus's life. But the identification here of a faithful and beloved brother carries with it a certain identity and status within the church. Onesimus's faith, in other words, is genuine, and he is trustworthy in his service to the gospel. In Philemon verse 10, Paul will write, my child Onesimus, whose father I have become during my imprisonment, identifying that indeed Onesimus has experienced a conversion, that he's been changed, and that has happened under Paul's ministry. And clearly a great friendship has ensued uh, in the meantime between the two of them, between Paul and Onesimus here. As he writes in Philemon that he is useful in verse 11, that he is his own heart in verse 12, and that he is a beloved brother in verse 16. Knowing what is at stake in such a return, Onesimus's conversion must certainly have been genuine. And not only that, it must have been transformative. He has met the master, and I say master here with a capital M, and is now following a new way. I'm reminded here of a phrase from a book uh, one of my former students gifted to me many years ago. It was one of those worst-case scenario uh, handbooks. And in the introduction to the, the book, the writer who's introducing this particular text uh, talked about a phrase on how to survive in the wilderness. And they use this phrase, learn to return. It'll learn to return. That's how you survive when you're out in the middle of nowhere. Learning to return. Clearly Onesimus now a disciple of Jesus Christ, has learned to return. And this is an important step, not only for disciples, but it's an important step in reconciling with others. 
and particularly as he reconciles with his earthly master, who is now his brother in Christ. Friends, we too need to learn to return. The second person here in the story that has a cost associated with them is the cost for Philemon. Of course, the book of Philemon, it's uh, probably easy to note that that would be the next person, the namesake of the book. If we think the cost for Onesimus is high, it might be higher for Philemon here. Paul's appeal is that Onesimus be welcomed back. That requires forgiveness. And how much harder it is for the one who has been wronged, the person who's been harmed, to forgive. If you're wondering, there's a, a tremendous book that I remember reading a number of years ago, uh, and perhaps you've read it as well, uh, Simon Wiesenthal's book, The Sunflower, uh, talks about the limits of forgiveness and compassion. It's an excellent book that I commend to you to consider. Um, it includes a number of essays at the, the tail end of it, uh, the original version as well as there was a 25th anniversary edition. Uh, both include essays from folks who all wrestle with this question about the limits of forgiveness within their own particular religious or philosophical tradition. It's a difficult question. It's a difficult question. It's even more difficult for someone who has been wronged to step in that place. But Paul here sees this as being necessary in the Christian life and sees it necessary for Philemon, noting that there's a benefit that would be a loss if Philemon does not forgive here. Note what he says in verse 11. He refers to Onesimus using particular words. In our translations, it says, useless is now useful. There's a, a change there uh, that happens. Um, and this is an important word to note here. Useless, now useful, both to Paul, but also to Philemon. And remember, we're talking about a runaway here. We're talking about a deserter. We're talking about someone who indeed has been useless in their work because they have left their work and they have not returned. So it's hard to imagine that that person who has wounded you, who has proven untrustworthy, as ever being useful again. That's where Philemon finds himself. But there's transformation that has happened here. A transformation that's occurred in Onesimus' life that has fundamentally changed him as a person. He has become something new. And there's an interesting play on words here. There's a pun that Paul is using here in the Greek. Uh, it actually could be a double pun when they look at it. Uh, we have the words useless and useful. Uh, that kind of plays on that same type of pun. In Greek, it's a very similar. It's akrestos, and it's uh, modeled with eukrestos. And so there's a very similar sound. But if you hear that krestos part in there, that reminds us of another Greek word, Christos, the word for Christ. And so we have this idea that maybe Paul is riffing on a double pun, akrestos, eukrestos, useless and useful, but also saying without Christ and with Christ. And so we can see that Onesimus, this little play here on the pun, is one that's saying he's become useful now. He's fundamentally different because he's been fundamentally changed by Christ. The second thing that Paul wants a Philemon to see and not to miss out on is that this is the beloved brother in the flesh, but also in the Lord. That's a change in relationship and possibly the apex of the entire letter as you read through it. This might be the high point of this letter. And this change is signaled by a change we have already observed in Onesimus, a beloved brother in the flesh, and that flesh speaks to the earthly relationship uh, that they can experience together, but even more now as brothers in the Lord whose relationship to one another is now fixed in eternity. Knowing this, one can sense the importance of reconciling this matter. I read a quote this past week from uh, 
fellow named Paul Boos, who's an author, who said this, and I think it speaks well for us to consider as we think of our own lives in forgiveness. Boos writes this, Forgiveness does not change the past, but it does enlarge the future. It does enlarge the future. And how much more is the relationship to be had if forgiveness were to be offered here? How much more of a brotherhood could be experienced between these two Christian brothers when forgiveness is extended? And so the costly action here uh, for Philemon, who is well within his rights to take punitive action against the runaway, well within his rights within the Roman world, well within his rights within the Jewish world, to, take puni- to offer punishment or mete out punishment here in Onesimus' life. But to instead, he welcomes him, and he's to welcome him like Paul. That's how Paul writes it in verse 17. And he's to cancel the debt, as Paul writes again in verse 18. Not only does the costly action greatly benefit what we receive, notice this, there's resemblance. Doesn't this sound very familiar? Doesn't this costly action resemble the benefit we receive in Jesus Christ? Is that not what God has done for us? Even while we were a long way off, runaways is how the parable talks about the one who's the prodigal. The Father ran to us. The Father embraces us. The Father clothes us and places a costly ring on our finger, claiming us once more as beloved children, welcomes us home with a lavish reception and celebration. There's an important principle here of grace, an important principle we're not to lose sight of when forgiveness is extended that is reflected and reverberates within the Christian life. And it's this. Just because you have the right doesn't mean that it is right. Just because we have the right to take a certain course of action, and Lindsay did a wonderful job of of kind of speaking into this for our children and talking about this $20 bill she found, just because you might be entitled to something, just because the law might be on your side, just because you have the right doesn't mean that it is right. And that's what Paul is calling Philemon to understand here, a higher ethic. God's grace calls Philemon to something different than reaction. Philemon here is called to reconciliation. He's called to forgive. He's called to take action as a term we use here at John Knox of being a grace revealer. That he is to act on the basis of love just as Paul makes his appeal to him. And just as Onesimus embodies his name now, Onesimus literally means useful, just as he's become one who is to be useful, Philemon too is to live into his own name, a name that is based on the Greek word for loving. Philemon is to be one who loves well. Of course, there's a third person here who has a great cost to himself as well, and that being the Apostle Paul. History reminds us over and over just how dangerous a vocation being a peacemaker is. When one inserts themselves between two folks who need to forgive, who need to reconcile, we see that as being a great danger. It's a dangerous profession to take on that place. Paul's appeal could have fallen on deaf ears at this moment. Or worse, it could have been rejected along with the faith that Paul espoused. Could have been thrown out. But tradition tells us that Philemon took a different action. He didn't throw it out. He didn't forget it. 
but he understood the teaching of the apostle to be an important teaching for his life, important teaching for the Christian life. In fact, Philemon, who in verse 5 is described as one who has love for all the saints and faith toward the Lord Jesus, his transformation and conversion were also real, and they had changed him at some point in history, so much so that this requested action, in fact, really this required action, it happened. Tradition tells us it happened. And it happened because God had changed the heart of Philemon, because God had changed the heart of Onesimus. It happened because God had changed the heart of Paul. Three people whose lives were brought together because of Jesus Christ. All had been transformed and changed, which made reconciliation possible. So why, like Cyrus Habib, would one leave a promising political career and become a priest? Why, like Onesimus, would you return to face the music, returning to a life of possibly enslavement and even the possibility of severe punishment? Why, like Philemon, would you extend forgiveness and receive back someone who by their very actions has stolen from you and has dishonored you? Why, like Paul, risk loss of reputation and friendship? Why do that? Why go through all that trouble? Well, the short answer is this, and it's one that I've said over and over throughout this series. The short answer is, enough indeed is enough. Jesus is enough. And when Jesus Christ, the preeminent one, the one that we rightfully call king, calls you and calls me to follow, when Jesus calls us to that life of trusting obedience, a life of following our master, a life that by most all cultural measures of success seems at times so peculiar, so, so peculiar, we're called to be heavenly-minded. Richard, who was bishop of Chichester in the 12th and 13th century, is credited with words that you may have heard before, and wrote these words, Dear Lord, of thee three things I pray, to see thee more clearly, to love thee more dearly, to follow thee more nearly. So let me ask you this morning, what about you? Can you hear the voice of the one who calls you by name, who is inviting you uh, today to not only be a revealer of grace, but to be a recipient as well? Perhaps this morning the same Jesus is calling you to relinquish something that you've been holding on to or you've laid claim to that is keeping you from following more nearly. Maybe you've wronged a sister or brother in Christ. Perhaps you're holding a grudge or you're unwilling to forgive. Maybe the reputation and the clout that you have built for yourself is crowding out the person that God has called you to be. Friend, it's time to come home. It's time to embrace. It's time to experience the peace of Christ. Today is the day of salvation. And so in closing this morning, I leave you with these words from Eugene Peterson, who writes at the outset of his uh, introduction to the book of Philemon, in his message remix version, he wrote this, every movement we make in response to God has a ripple effect. 
touching family, neighbors, friends, community. Belief in God alters our language. Love of God affects our daily relationships. Hope in God enters into our work. And Peterson goes on to say, none of these movements and responses, beliefs and prayers, gestures and searches can be confined to the soul. They spill out and they make history. Friends, when God calls you and me to go back, when God calls you and me to forgive, when God calls you and me to embrace and to reconcile, just like he did Onesimus, just like he did Philemon, we need to know that enough is truly enough. As recipients of God's grace, go in peace. Shape and bend the world toward love as an ambassador of reconciliation. Go and make history as you reveal God's grace, because enough's enough. Amen. Let us pray together. Lord, we thank you on this day that, particularly as we celebrate this Sunday, Christ the King, we affirm with the calendar that enough's enough. Lord, help us to affirm with our hearts that enough is enough. Lord, I pray for anyone who's participating in worship today, uh, who finds themselves in a similar situation uh, that Philemon and Onesimus found themselves in, where reconciliation is needed between their sisters or brothers, Lord, where separation has uh, become a very regular part of their life. We pray, Lord, that uh, your spirit would move in them, even now, to provide to them the courage that they need to take that first step to reach out and offer that embrace, to be the one who learned to return. And so, Lord, as those who've been called by your name, who've been called to come and to follow, we offer our lives to you, trusting you, trusting our master that you might lead us not only to embrace, but also to home. We pray this in Jesus' name.